Good afternoon, everybody. Today I am joined with Sam Leblondon, who is the grandson of President George H.W. Bush and the nephew of President George W. Bush and the son of Dorothy Bush. I think I got that right. You got it right, Jacob. Thank you for having me on your show. Very excited to, uh, to have a discussion with you today. First off, how are you doing so far? I'm feeling great. Thank you for asking. I'm here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I live here with my wife, Lee. Um, and uh, yeah, everything's great. Besides it being a little bit humid and the dew point being above 80 degrees, all is well in, in, in D.C. these days. Awesome. Well, getting into our questions, well, my first question I have is this. What was it like growing up as the grandson and as the nephew um, of President George H.W. Bush and President George W. Bush? Well, Jacob, it was pretty amazing, I, I have to admit. Um, to be honest, uh, you know, my, grand, my grandparents, George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, did a remarkable job of making each and every one of their family members feel special. And what I mean by that is that, yes, they had risen to the highest office of the land, President of the United States, but whenever we got to spend time with them, we felt like we we're the only people in the room. So to me, and, and everyone thinks this is funny, but to me, they were Gampy and Ganny. That's what we called them. That's what they called their grandparents. Um, um, yes, they were president of the United States, but when my grandfather was president, I was four to eight years old. So it was funny. I was talking to my cousin, Barbara Bush, George W.'s daughter, and, and she told a very funny story about how um, after my grandfather's inauguration, we were so young, we didn't really understand what was going on fully. Um, we, uh, Barbara returned to school and she asked her best friend, when is your grandfather's inauguration? We didn't understand that not everyone had this uh, situation, but um, both of my grandparents and, and my uncle George um, are very down to earth. They, had, they have a remarkable gift of connecting with people, connecting with their family, being able to separate their job and their family, which is very important, um, and, uh, and making time for all of us. So to me, it was, it was you know, looking back in retrospect, uh, obviously it was remarkable. We, we were, I was able to watch from the sidelines uh, the president of the United States, and he happened to be my Gampy, which is pretty, pretty crazy to say. Um, but that being said, um, I, I feel like I had a relatively normal life growing up. Um, and that was all due to the fact that my grandparents made it that way. Um, they, uh, they were really special people. I was so lucky to have them in my life for 32 years. Um, and uh, they taught me a lot that I now carry into my life every single day. And the same goes for George W. I was in, uh, in Maine this past week and spent some time with him. Um, and, you know, we're not talking politics. We're, you know, we're, we're playing golf. We're, we're talking about the game. You know, we're, it's, it's a normal family atmosphere. And I think that's a misconception about our family is that we sit around and say, what are you going to run for? Or what are you going to do to change the world? And that's not the case. A lot of our um, things that we've learned from them are kind of by osmosis, by watching them, by leading by example. And, uh, and so we were lucky. We were lucky. Of course, we were very lucky to have them in our lives, but it was a fairly normal upbringing, believe it or not, Jacob. Wow. Um, and of course, one of my other questions that I have leading up to your grandpa's legacy and everything is, 
what do you say is a lesson that he taught you, uh, maybe when you were fishing or anything like that, as well as your grandmother? Do you have one that um, sticks out to you more than I'm sure you have a lot, but if you could pick one from Certainly. your grandma and your grandfather. I'd be happy to share with a, a couple with you, Jacob. Um, you know, I'll start with my grandmother. Um, I was married about four years ago. Um, and my grandparents were married for 74 years. Pretty amazing, pretty remarkable. I would have to live to 112 to be married for 74 years. I think they're advancing um, medicine uh, a little bit, but I don't think I'm living to 112. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. So w when, when uh, we were married, I asked my grandmother to give us marriage advice. And uh, the one thing that she told us is to go 75%. And what that means is that each member, right, the husband and the wife, the, you know, each, the, each, each of the two need to go 75% for each other. Um, so let's say I come home and I have a tough day and I only have 25% to give. As long as my wife has 75%, we're still 100. And guess what? If I have a great day and she does too, and we're both giving 75%, we're at 150%. We're in great shape. So as long as you are able to give 75% to your spouse, um, which they did for 74 years, um, it's the key to success for an amazing, uh, amazing relationship. So that's a great piece of advice that my grandmother gave me. Um, if you need more advice from my grandmother, she, uh, she posthumously wrote an amazing book called Pearls of Wisdom, filled with all of the advice that she gave to all the people she came in contact with. But you asked about my grandfather too. Um, you know, yes, we love to go fishing and, and, and we talk, but um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I learned from my grandfather was by watching him and watching how he acts, watching how he treats other people. Um, he was a humble servant. His legacy of service has inspired me to do so many different things. One is my podcast. Uh, to shine a light on their legacy of service. We'd like to talk about that podcasting on the detail. Yeah, we will. We will. Um, but his legacy of service was a uh, was an important uh, factor because you know, Jacob. A lot of people ask me, when am I getting into the family business? And they're talking about politics, right? They're talking about when are you going to run for Congress or whatever. And my answer is, I'm already in the family business, and the family business is serving others. And so, yes, we have, uh, I have two very high profile family members who served others at the highest office in the world as president of the United States. Um, but there's a lot of other ways to serve. And our family serves in so many different ways, whether it be my cousin Lauren, who's fed over 100 million people through her feed organization. Uh, my cousin Barbara, who, um, who has a, pub a public health organization um, that does a lot of great work all over the world. Um, we find ways to serve others, maybe outside of the political world. But yes, we have some, uh, we, we, before we started the interview, you mentioned my cousin, George P., who's running for attorney general of Texas. We certainly still have people in the political fray. Um, that's a great avenue to serve, but it's not the only way. And my grandparents and my grandfather taught me all of the different ways to serve others. It could be just giving one hour a week to the local um, soup kitchen or um, tutoring kids uh, for two hours a week. It's amazing how that little commitment from you or me can make a huge difference, a difference in someone's life. And my grandparents not only talk the talk, 
but they walk the walk. And I watched them walk that walk for 32 years and I, you can't help but catch the bug. So our family business of serving others is something that all of us have embraced wholeheartedly in our own ways. Wow, that is awesome. Um, and of course, one of the things that you do, correct me if I'm wrong, here, is you're the director of the George and Barbara Bush Foundation. Well, I'm a member of the board of directors. So we have a small family um, um, uh, a board that, that handles the George and Barbara Bush Foundation. And the George and Barbara Bush Foundation is a foundation that uh, supports the Presidential Library in College Station, Texas. Um, we also uh, support the Bush School of Public Service at Texas A&M, um, which, which is one of my grandfather's greatest legacies. Um, all the amazing students who, who go on to work in public service, whether it be city planners or, uh, or in the intelligence uh, uh, area, um, uh, or even running for public office as well. So um, we support those two. We also are, are part of uh, the Points of Light Foundation, the Barbara Bush Literacy, Family Literacy Foundation. So um, it's an amazing, um, uh, amazing organization where we really can support um, so many different uh, parts of my grandparents' legacies. And uh, it, it's rewarding. And one of the main things that we're doing now is really trying to build up the presidential library because we think, we believe that now more than ever, people need to know about the service of legacy, or le sorry, legacy of service of my grandparents, George and Barbara Bush. Um, so we're doing a lot of things and, I, and I'll, um, if you have time, I'll fill you in on a couple of things we're doing right now, uh, Jacob, we're, we are, uh, we're building a restaurant right outside of our, the presidential library. Um, and we're gonna place a uh, decommissioned Marine One helicopter right in the middle of it. And I think that's important because I don't know if you've ever been to College Station, Texas, Jacob, but it's kind of off the beaten path. So we wanna make, we wanna give more and more reasons for people to visit the library. So that's gonna be step one. We also um, have the 4141 engine that famously took my grandfather to his final resting place there in College Station. That's correct. So they, uh, Union Pacific donated that train. So we're now putting together um, a, a great exhibit that's gonna include that 4141 train. Um, and so, yeah, so part of, uh, part of what we do at the George and Barbara Bush Foundation is to really promote the legacy of my grandparents. And uh, one of our new initiatives, especially now that they're both in heaven, is to find ways to spread their message to more people because Jacob I know you're you're very politically inclined you know a lot about politics but there's a lot of people your age who don't know who George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush were they maybe know Donald Trump and Barack Obama and that's it right and I think there's a lot you can learn from George and Barbara Bush or you know we of course think that and uh, so we're using a lot of different avenues to kind of reach new people to support their legacy in that different way. So it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, uh, group to be a part of. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be part of that kind of legacy builders uh, of George and Barbara Bush. And, and every single day I try to do something to, to promote, promote their legacy. Wow. Um, and I guess one other question I have is you also host a podcast. What do you like talk a little bit about that and how I, yeah, I do. I do. So that's part of the part of that legacy promotion, right? So 
I have a podcast called All the Best, right? Just like your podcast, it's available on all the Spotify and Apple Pie, every, anywhere you can get great podcasts. And what we focus on is their service, uh, legacy of service, legacy of service, excuse me. Um, you know, we have people who knew them well, right? Uh, family members, uh, cabinet members, uh, you know, Vice President Quayle, Prime Minister Mulroney, all these people who knew them very well and uh, can talk and tell stories about how George and Barbara Bush affected their lives in so many ways. But we also like to highlight people who do amazing things in their community who maybe didn't know George and Barbara Bush, but they are still acting in that same vein that George and Barbara Bush lived every single day. So it's a great project. Um, I've, I've, I've been really blessed to be a part and be able to host. And uh, I've almost become kind of the, uh, the Bush family historian now that I've been focused on, uh, you know, going through their life and all their amaz amazing achievements and, and, and really get to promote their legacy. And so just like I said earlier, Jacob, we, um, we're hoping to reach new audiences with the podcast. You know, if you want to learn about George and Barbara Bush and, and, and read about um, all of their different things they've done or see documents. A lot of times you have to go to College Station, Texas, and that's not easy for everybody. So we want to make kind of a, a, a very open and, uh, and readily accessible kind of living uh, audio document so people can go in and say, I want to learn about the falling of the Berlin Wall and what did George H.W. Uh, Bush have to do with that? Well, I interviewed Marlon Fitzwater. He was his press secretary during the time. So um, what a great perspective. Uh, to get and, 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 and in a quick 30 minutes, you can learn about all the amazing things he did around that event. And, and it goes on and on. And that's just one example. But um, it's been a it's been a really rewarding project for me. And, and, and our hope is that we're reaching new groups of people who um, are learning a lot about George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush and maybe can take some of that into their own life and serve their own community in their own way. Wow, that's awesome. And if you, if you wouldn't mind um, telling us who are some of the guests that you've had on. Sure. Well, we've had, uh, I think we've had 82 guests or so. So we've, uh, we've, we've had people from uh, Vice President Dan Quayle, uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, Secretary James Baker. Um, but then we also go into the sports realm. We have uh, a sportscaster Jim Nance, um, you know, uh, all, all kinds of different people, you know, all of my family members, uh, President George W. Bush, Uncle George, as I call him. Um, it's been, uh, it's been amazing. And, uh, and part of, uh, you know, some of my most recent ones, I had uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci on, um, Secretary Tommy Thompson. So the list goes on and on. I hate to say, leave people out, but um, you know, everybody's remarkable in their own way. And, and what was it uh, like having Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci on? Pretty good. Pretty good. He was, uh, uh, it was a pretty, you know, he's a pretty busy guy, as I'm sure you can understand with everything going on in the world today. But what a lot of people don't know is that uh, when my grandfather was vice president, um, uh, he would go visit NIH. And at the time, he would, he would visit with a young doctor named Tony Fauci. And Tony Fauci was an HIV and AIDS expert. And at the time, my grandfather was, think, was, was planning on running for president. So he was really interested in HIV and AIDS. And, and at the time, it had a stigma attached to it. No one knew anything about it. 
Uh, no one knew, can you even touch somebody who has HIV and AIDS? And so he went and visited on many occasions um, Tony Fauci and learned about HIV and AIDS and it became one of his biggest um, uh, initiatives while he was president to kind of help figure that out. And it led to my, grand, uh, my uncle George starting PEPFAR, um, which, ended, which you know, on record has, uh, at least on the podcast, uh, Dr. Fauci said it saved over 15 million lives. So um, Dr. Fauci, yes, I, you know, we talked about coronavirus a little bit, but I, I, you know, we really focused on their relationship and, and all the great things that, that they did together while he was vice president and president. But yeah, pretty remarkable. He's a very busy guy, as you know. Um, he, he was great though. He had his own studio and, you know, he's a pro by now. He's probably does like 10 interviews a day. So he just fit me in and they're a well-oiled machine over there. But, uh, yeah, he was a, he was a great, uh, great person to have on. And, um, you know, he's one of the many people who considered my grandfather a really good friend. Wow. That's awesome. And just a few other questions I do have, um, one of them being, do you have any specific memories when you've visited the White House or anything like that in the political world while um, your uncle or your grandparents or any of your family members were in office that stick out to you that you will always remember those remarkable moments? Sure, sure. So, you know, as I said before, when my grandfather was president, I was four to eight years old. So my memories were more general. For instance, uh, Christmas time in the White House was a magical time where they, um, you know, they would put me in charge of throwing the fake snow all over the place. And me and my cousins would, you know, have fake snowball fights in the red room or the blue room, right? Um, we would uh, we would go up to the dormitory on the, on the on the top floor and slide down the panels. So, you know, when my grandfather was president, we were kids and we had fun and we didn't know any different than uh, that we were in the White House. We just thought, man, my grandfather has a really big house that's a lot of fun to play in. So uh, that was kind of our time when my grandfather was there. And then um, obviously I was an adult or at least thought I was an adult when my uncle George was president. So we had more kind of uh, went to state dinners and uh, got to spend time in the family quarters. And, and we were lucky because we lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. And my mom and my uncle George were very close. So we'd have um, dinners uh, once a month with them at, in the family quarters. So we got to spend a lot of time there. And actually, now that we're talking, I remember, uh, uh, you know, this is just part of being the president. So we were sitting down to having dinner dinner one uh, one night in the family quarters. It's a very private, small room. It's got um, beautiful windows on that. So I've talked to other uh, people who have had the opportunity. Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous. And so we're sitting down probably just, uh, it's probably just my uncle George and my aunt Laura, and then maybe me and my mom. Um, and we heard uh, People, someone running down the hallway outside, sprinting. And we go, what's going on? And it was a Secret Service agent. And he said, sir, there's a unidentified, you know, object that's in our airspace. And so they went and grabbed my Uncle George. And they, you know, they leave all of us there because he's the priority, right? He's the president. And he turns around and goes, follow us, right? And so they run us down into the, uh, into the bunker um, which is below the White House, and kind of put us in a room. Floors down it or something like that. I remember they yeah. went down there one day. Sure, sure, and ended up being, you know, everything was okay. It was, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of a random guy in a in a single engine plane who 
lost his where he was going but it just goes to show you kind of how fast things can change how fast things can change and how important at the time and at all times the president of the united states is and how serious um they take their security but um you know most of my most of my uh memories are very happy ones my my uncle george celebrates his birthday uh, around july 4th so we'd always have a big party um and we'd sit on the truman balcony which is amazing to say out loud right now and and watch the fireworks on the mall uh which was just amazing so um yeah part of part of uh you know i i wish i had a story about a, a world leader saying this or doing that but you know our family was was just that we were a family and it wasn't a business we were we were together and laughing and crying and and having fun and enjoying each other's company and and my memories are all great memories about us kind of having gatherings with all of us together and and uh it just so happens that the white house uh for 12 years of my life was was one of those meeting points um and uh boy was i lucky to to have that experience wow and one other question I just do ask all my guests who are kids or grandkids or presidents are, did you ever get to uh, spend nights in the White House? I did. I did. So I was very lucky to do that. I've, uh, uh, you know, when my uncle was president, I'm, I'm only two or three years younger than Jenna and Barbara, his two children. So um, we would, uh, I would go and, and hang out with them. And uh, I've slept in the Lincoln bedroom before, which is amazing. It's a haunted. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see any ghosts. Maybe I saw like a book close, but I, I don't know. I didn't know. I'm just kidding, but no, not haunted that I know of Jacob, but um, I, I knew the stories going in and I, maybe I took me a little extra longer to go to bed, but I didn't, I didn't see anything. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've gotten the chance to, to spend some time there. And then, uh, and then we also spent a lot of time in Camp David and that was kind of a special place for us for a couple of reasons. Uh, every Christmas, our family would get together at Camp David, uh, which is up in the Catoctin Mountains, kind of about you know an hour uh, away from the White House. And there's a couple of reasons why our family used Camp David a lot. Um, the number one reason is because my grandparents and my uncle wanted to give the Secret Service agents a break for Christmas. So what's great about Camp David is that it's a it's an active military base. So when my when when the president's there or when, you know, my uncle or, or grandfather are there, he doesn't need a full Secret Service staff. So part of why we went there is so all the Secret Service during that time can go to their uh, home to their families. You know, if if the president or the current president uh, or you know the former president goes to Mar-a-Lago or <laughs> Delaware, Hawaii to go golfing, yeah, or Hawaii for President Obama, whatever whatever it is. He needs Secret Service there because there's no military presence. So we we made a concerted effort to uh, to give those guys a break because they work really hard to protect our family. And uh, and it just so happens that we also love to be there. Um, it was just such an amazing place to get together. And you know, th there's a lot of stuff there that people don't know about: movie theater and a bowling alley and and skeet shooting and golf. And there's so many different uh, activities. And we were a very sports oriented competitive family so whenever we had a chance to compete whether it be you know running or or skeet shooting um that was a great place to to, to do that and uh um so we we loved camp david we loved the white house i have nothing but fond memories about spending time with my family there and it's that's what our family's all about spending time together having laughs crying together um so 
um, we're, we're, we've been blessed to have George and Barbara Bush in our life and, and teach us a lot of great lessons. And uh, it makes us the people we are today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have anything else that you'd like to say? Oh, Jacob, well, nothing else I'd like to say, but I will, I will say one thing. I will say thank you for having me on your show. I've been, I've li- I told you before we went on the air, I've been listening to a couple. You're doing a great job. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of like, subscribe, right? A lot of people are uh, are picking up new hobbies during the pandemic, and I think you found your calling. So keep it up. Uh, you know, I know what it I, I know what it's like to try to get guests and hear no and yes and and try to reach out to people. I do it all the time. For every yes I get, I get ten no's. So don't give up. Exactly. Keep going. And uh, you're doing a great job. And I can't wait to listen to this and many more podcasts in the future. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Beer Show today. Today, I'm joined by Mike Reagan, who is the son of President Ronald Reagan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. It's sunny California. Awesome. Sunny in Indiana, which is pretty good in the wintertime, of course. Um, <laughs> Before we get into the questions, we'd like to talk about what today what today was like 40 years ago and what had happened. Well, 40 years ago today, my father, there was an assassination attempt against my father from John Hinckley in Washington, D.C. And um, it was a horrific day for the family. We were, you know, we were at home. I was actually at the office uh, when I uh, had a Secret Service Mike Ludi, who was the agent in charge of my detail that day, I walked into my office and said, it's been an assassination attempt against your father. Everything's fine. And then he walked out and closed the door. And I was sitting in a meeting with a couple of people. And we kind of looked at each other and went like, what was that? And I went back out and I opened the door. I said, what did you say, Mike? And he told me. And he said, not to worry. Everything's fine with your father. And I went, okay. And I went back into my office and I decided, you know, I'm going to call Nancy at the White House. So I called the White House looking for Nancy, and Nancy was not there. There would only be one reason Nancy wasn't there. She'd be headed somewhere else. Where would she be headed? And so I just concluded my mother had been shot, and I told my dad, been shot. He said, no, no, no. And I said, yes, yes, yes. And we found out later, of course, he was shot and, and taken to the hospital uh, that saved his life. You know, there's a great backstory to this. Uh, Jerry Parr, Secret Service agent, uh, in charge of my father's detail that day. He was the agent that threw my father in the back of the limousine, and then they pulled out from Washington uh, Hilton. Uh, Jerry Parr, when he was a young boy, went to see a movie. Well, in 1939, my father did a movie called The Code of the Secret Service. My father said it was such a horrific, terrible movie that he was in. They swore my sister Marie and I to secrecy that we would never tell anybody he was in it. And if we ever went and saw it ourselves, he would write us out of his will. That's how bad he thought the movie was. So we never told anybody. And Jerry Parr, as a child, went to see that movie. And because of that movie, he ended up becoming a Secret Service agent and would be the Secret Service agent who has saved my father's life, one of them, on that day, March 30th of 1981. Wow. 
And um, correct me if I was wrong, but he was talking to, was he talking to, was he speaking to Union at the Hilton Hotel that day? Yeah, he was speaking, yes, he was speaking, Union's there. Uh, interesting enough, my wife Colleen and I, uh, that was the first hotel of the night that he was inaugurated. That would be the first hotel where he would have his inaugural ball. And my wife Colleen and I, in fact, uh, were honored to be the people my dad chose to be at that ball to introduce my father for the first time as president of the United States of America. And what was interesting about that, that evening was that uh, we were in the green room, the holding room, if you will, uh, waiting for my father and Nancy to arrive, Colleen and I were, and uh, they came in and dad turned and looked at the mirror on the wall to kind of straighten his tie and make sure he looked good. So when he was introduced, he looked great when he came out and Nancy had his, her back to him, but was facing me and Colleen would be on my left. And I was not paying attention to anything Nancy was saying because I was looking past Nancy uh, into the mirror, back at my father to look at his face. And my, my father, as he was straightening his tie, cocked his head, straightened his tie, and he got kind of a smile on his face, twinkle in his eye, and he turned straight around, and he jumped straight up in the air, clicked his heels together and said, I'm the president of the United States. And it was just a great moment. It's like all the pressure of the day, the inaugural, you know, inauguration, the parade, everything, all of a sudden was in that moment, wow, I'm the president of the United States of America. Wow. And now, of course, getting to some of the questions about your father, our president, our former president, Ronald Reagan. Um, what were some of the qualities that you saw in your father that in, in his way of leadership and everything that you saw before he was president, before he was governor? What were some of those leadership skills that you saw in him? Well, I mean, remember, eight times he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild here in Hollywood. Uh, so he got a lot of work during those days of his lives, working against communism, against liberals and, and what have you. Uh, so you got to understand, he got a lot done during that period of time. But, you know, this Ronald Reagan you saw as president, the one with the, the humor and what have you, was the same guy I saw, you know, at home or on a ride out to the ranch. He was a great storyteller. Uh, and he showed that when he was president of the United States. He always told you a story. Uh, whether it was the child who wrote him the letter after he was shot, uh, about giving you know, his next speech in his pajamas, whatever it might be, he always told a story. And one of his great friends, Bill Clark, uh, great friend of his, great friend of this country, uh, he and I talked many times during the years, and Bill passed away a few years ago, but one conversation we talked about my father, he said, you know, one thing about your father, he spoke to us in parables. And if you go back and you listen to his speeches, he really did. He told you stories. And, and growing up, he would do the same thing with us as children, with Maureen and I. Um, he would tell stories. And then he would hope that you got the story and did what he really wanted you to do. Uh, he didn't tell you to do this or do that. He would tell you a story. And the story would hope would lead you to do, in fact, 
the right thing. And so we all saw that, or Maureen and I saw that growing up. You know, remember, I was born in 45. My sister Maureen passed away in 2001, born in 41. So we got a lot more years with my father uh, as children uh, than Patty and Ron did because, you know, Patty was born in 52. Ron was born in 58. So they weren't that old when dad really got into politics and ran for the governor of the state of California. Correct. And another question that I have, and this is more of a memory that you had with him. Um, what was your favorite memory that you had with President Reagan, your father, when he was president? And then what was also a favorite memory that you had of all time? Well, I, when, he was, when he was president, the you know, greatest memory I had was him being president. I mean, that's a pretty good memory. Uh, and, and what have you. But, you know, allowing me to be in places at certain times uh, when he was making a, a decision that was historical. Uh, the shoot down of the planes over Libya back in the 1980s. Uh, the fact that he called me on the phone. Uh, the morning of the New Hampshire primary back in 1980. And uh, I was the one he allowed to fire, uh, you know, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort uh, because I was the only one honest with him during the 80 campaign that he was in Iowa. His campaign staff had been lying to him uh, and deceiving him into believing he was going to win Iowa when he should have been their favorite son and he should have won, but he didn't because they kept him away. And he remembered the fact that I was the only one that was really honest with him. So the morning New Hampshire primary called me on the phone at 6.30 in the morning in LA and uh, asking me to hear if he's release he was going to put out. And it was upon me to either okay it or not okay it. And he read the press release to me and it was the firing of Sears, Stone, Manafort and Black. And I approved it, but I'll be honest with you, after I approved it, he said, fine, I'm going to give it to my press secretary. You'll be hearing about this in your 10 o'clock news or 7 o'clock news in Los Angeles. And I thought to myself, you know, uh-oh. I said, Dad, are you going to win today? You say, I'm going to win today. I said, fine, they let it go. Because now I'm thinking to myself, he loses today. They're going to blame me firing Paul Manford, Roger Stone, and John Sears, and that whole crew. So I thought, oh, yeah, scary stuff. But being there, you know, for that moment, allowing that moment to take place, uh, writing a note to his grandson, Cameron, soon after he becomes president. Uh, you know, he, he writes a letter to, to Cameron saying, gosh, I just found out somebody sold my signature for $10,000. Can you believe somebody would actually pay $10,000 for my signature? He said, so based on that, he said, I, t I tell you about the final hostage that didn't come out of Iran on my, on my, uh, not, my day I was inaugurated, that we've been negotiating to get her out since then. And my secretary of state is about ready to meet with me uh, to tell me how the negotiations are going. But I thought I would tell you this, uh, and, you, and you keep this note, because this note might help pay for your college education. Uh, love, Grandpa. P.S. Your grandfather is the 45th president or the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. So he signed his sign and and allowed Cameron then to make the decision whether to use it for college education or not. 
You can't rip that note away from my son. The library has wanted it. Everybody has wanted that since the beginning of time. And Cameron has that in a very special place from his grandfather. That was a great moment. Wow. And just real quick, of course, um, before going to the next question, what were some of the places that you got to fly in Air Force One with your father when he was president? What was what? Some of the places that you got to fly with him on Air Force well, One. I, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't go many places. I mean, Air Force One, really, because, you know, a lot of people ask, did you live at the White House? I said, no, I was, you know, I had a child by then. I was married at my own house. I lived in California. I moved out of the house a long, long, long time ago. Uh, but I did hitch a ride with him on, gosh, on Good Friday um, of uh, 1987, I think it was, I, or 88. On Good Friday, I was my my book on the outside looking in. It just come out. I was back in Washington D.C. doing an event. Uh, stayed house my father that night with him the next day to Point Magoo here in California. And uh, another another moment in time, as we were landing at Point Magoo that day, uh, he counted out the number nine on his fingers. And I said, what is important about number nine? He said, in nine more months, I'll no longer be president of the United States. I said, that's something you're looking forward to. He said, yes, I am. I said, why? And he said, you know, back in March of 1981, at the assassination, we were driving away from the hotel. I looked out that window and I saw people who had been shot with bullets that were meant for me laying in their own blood. And I have never wanted to put other people in harm's way again because somebody was after me. And so I haven't gone to church on a regular basis, if at all. And so I'm looking forward to no longer being president of the United States so I can once again begin going back to church to visit with my Lord on Sunday mornings. And I said to him, I said, well, why don't you go this Easter Sunday? He said, well, it's not on the schedule. Uh, and that's how they do things in Washington. You got to have a schedule. Wow. And he took off the ranch where Nancy will like Colleen and my, and my kids. And about 10 years ago, yeah, 10 years ago. So I was uh, telling this story and John Barletta, who was the secret service agent in charge of the ranch, I happened to be in the audience. And John came up to me afterwards, and, and John and I have been friends forever, but I never knew this till this day. He came up to me afterwards, he said, just to let you know, your dad went to church that Sunday. I said, what? He said, we couldn't figure it out because it wasn't on the schedule, but he called early in the morning of Easter Sunday morning, he said, I want to go to church. And we had to get everything together to take him down the hill to go there. Wow, interesting, wow. Can you hear me fine still? I hear I hear you fine, but somebody's trying to call me through. Totally understand. We're back. Uh, another question right. that I have. Can you hear me fine still? Yeah, I hear you fine. Um, how do you think, what do you think President Reagan would be thinking about the national debt and how it is today? Um, of course, President Reagan he was fiscally conservative and everything. How do you think he would be handling the debt today? And what do you think he would think? Well, he, he, be, he would be railing against it like anybody else. But, you know, unfortunately, what happens is 
that you have a, a situation where, you know, the Republicans are against the debt until they're in charge. And then all of a sudden they're, they are for debt. Bingo. That's every, that's what it's like for every party in control. I feel like when they have. Oh yeah. Whoever's in control, whoever's in control talks about the national debt. That's the problem. Um, also, what do you think? I know we talked about this a little, um, the other day on the phone. What do you think President Reagan would be doing right now with the coronavirus, with the mask wearing and the social distancing? We like to talk about what you think. It's it's you know it's really a different time, different place. Uh, but my father would, you know, my father was big on states' rights, and so he would in fact be, uh, you know, turning it back over to the states and letting the states make those decisions, you know, for their for their for their people. Just like when he ran for president of the United States back in 1980, one of the main things he had on his agenda was get rid of the Department of Education that Jimmy Carter had put in. He could never do it, but he wanted to get rid of it. So he really believed in states' rights, and I believe he would send it over to you know the states and let them make those decisions, uh, not the federal government make those decisions. Yes. And one of my other quick questions that I have is what was Ronald Reagan like as a dad and was he different from his public persona uh, as your father? Public persona and dad were about the same. You know, he, he just, he was just a great, great guy, great guy to be around. A great, as I said, great, great storyteller, great, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I said this at his funeral when I was eulogizing him, he was divorced. He had a second family, but he never forgot his first family. And, and too many divorcees today forget the first family that they had. In lieu of going to the second, forgot. Which is so having a parent that was there for us on a regular basis. Uh, and that was dad. Every Saturday, going out to the ranch, riding horses, shooting ground squirrels, swimming in the pool, doing all those things. Did fathers do with their with their sons? Yes. And my final question that I have today is: Do you think what do you think the future looks like for the Republican Party? You've been a strategist. You were, I believe, on radio at one point. Um, and so this is more of a question for you, since you've been around politics now for a while. Where do you see the Republican Party going um, after? Since the 2020 election wasn't so good, we lost the Senate, we lost the House, we lost the presidency. Where is no. the Republican Party going? The Republican, the Republican Party needs to lead. They need to lead and find a way to get together and work together towards whatever the common good is for each and every each and every one of us. They need to learn to fight. Democrats fight. You know, my sister told me back in 1965 when her campaign for my dad for governor. I said, what's the difference between a Democrat and Republican? She says, Democrats go to bed every night hoping you never get it. Republicans go to bed every night hoping someday you do get it. Uh, Republicans need to fight to make sure everybody gets it. You can't rest and hope everybody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, we figured it out. You got to help us figure it out. Awesome. And just a quick one last one, I promise. Thank you. Um, what oh. do you think... How, what do you think he would think of America right now? Not so much just with President Biden and President Trump, 
But what do you think he would think of America right now? Do you think he'd well, be happy with that? Do you think he'd be a little bit disappointed? Do you think he'd be surprised? I, I think he would. He would be tweet. He would be. He would be tweeting when I tweet. Uh, China is the this generation's evil empire, and we better learn to deal with it, because if we don't deal with it now. We'll be dealing with it with our grandchildren and their children in the future. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Beer Show. Today, I'm joined by George Cleveland. How are you doing today? Jacob, I'm wonderful. I hope you and everybody listening is great. Awesome. I am doing pretty good myself. Good. Are you ready to get into the questions? If you are, fire away. The first question I have is, for some of the people who might not know who President Grover Cleveland was, we had to talk about him, his background, where he was born, and what got him interested in the politics. Yep, we can do that. Awesome. We can do that. Do, where do you want? Do you, do you want to start someplace specific, or just where he roll was along? born and what his early life was like, and where okay. he went to college, and where he later, and how he got into politics. Right. Well, Grover was born in 1837 in Caldwell, New Jersey. And I know for some people, it's hard to believe that somebody can be alive who has a grandfather who was born in 1837, but, um, but he was. And um, he, what he did was to kind of mess the years up a bit. Um, when he was almost 50, he married my grandmother. And uh, so there was a 20, you know, 25 year plus difference between the two of them. My father was born in 1897. And then my father went and did the same thing, married a much younger woman. So um, we really stretched it out. As far as you know, age is concerned, I should be a great grandson, but I'm not. I'm the I'm the straight grandson, and um, which is you know it's kind of cool. Um, so Grover was he? Um, his father was a, a minister in Caldwell, New Jersey, and he grew up there. And eventually, they moved out near Western New York. Um, Fayetteville, New York, and he was uh, starting to go further west to um, work with some relatives out in Ohio, um, but got waylaid in Buffalo by an uncle who said, you know, hey, stay here and, and work with me. You'll really love Buffalo. And Buffalo was a booming place back then. Um, you know, it was one of the biggest ports in the United States. Um, so he stayed there and, and um, studied law and got interested in politics. and. Um, I think his, if I remember correctly, his first his first job was he was sheriff of Erie County and uh, New York. And here's a trivia question. I don't, I don't think I've even seen this one on Jeopardy. He's the only president of the United States that ever executed two people when he was when he was sheriff. He hangs two people and he didn't want to do it. He thought it was pretty distasteful, but usually a deputy did it. But Grover's theory was you shouldn't ask um, somebody who works for you to do the dirty work. You know, if you're the boss, you should do it yourself. So, wow. so he, he did it himself. Wow, interesting. And my second question that I have is, do you think that Grover Cleveland would be happy with what's going on in the USA? Like, do you think he'd be surprised that there's a big divide over political parties? Or what do you think? Well, you know, Jacob, that's it. It's, I think it's an easy question and it's a hard question to answer at the same time. Um, it's very difficult for me to put myself into his head. Um, but if I look at some of his policies, 
and some of the things he stood for. If he were alive today, he would probably not be a Democrat or Republican, he'd be a libertarian. He was a big believer in less government and a big believer in, you know, the, that we, the government just spends too much, too much money on things. Um, so I think he'd be, I think he'd be deeply involved. Um, and, you know, I mean, sometimes it goes your way and sometimes it doesn't, that's the nature of the world. But um, I'm sure he find, would find what goes on today to be extraordinarily fascinating. And in some cases, I think pretty disheartening. And um, what were some issues that he was very big on, of course, um, it, um, president? It's, oh, there were quite, you know, it was quite a few. It was, you know, you know, the Grover, the one thing, and this does show up on Jeopardy a lot. Grover was, Grover is the one that messed up the entire presidential count because uh, he was the 22nd and 24th president. Um, so so far, the only president that ever you know came back after after losing after losing an, an election. Um, so that really sort of you know that, that's that's thrown everybody off. His the one of the main things that he was interested in because you're in the post Civil War period um, was was it's really you know nothing's changed. Getting the economy going again was huge for him. And one particular issue that was, um, was very big for him was uh, Hawaii. Um, between his two terms, the United States overthrew the kingdom of Hawaii. And primarily because um, some of the business people that were there didn't like the fact that the Hawaiians wanted control of their old, own land. This is a story that has gone on in many places before. So we, the United States, overthrew the, the queen, Lilio Kalani. Um, and when Grover had been friends with her during his first term, so when he got back in for the second term, one of the first things he did was try and get the overthrow overturned. And needless to say, that did not, that did not work out. It was one of the big disappointments. But, um, you know, he was, a, he was known as being a particularly honest person and um, kind of reminds me of Jimmy Carter sometimes in that, you know, he spoke the truth, even if it was extremely unpopular. Um, tariff reform was big. And don't ask me about that because I don't understand a bit about tariffs and tariff reform and that kind of thing. Um, but he was, you know, he just kind of, he just kept to stay in the course. One thing he did, um, he wasn't a war president, which is one reason why a lot of people, you know, aren't that familiar with him. But he did um, significantly increase the number of ships in our Navy. And that ended up being really important when we came around to the Spanish-American War and then uh, the First World War. Interesting. Wow. And of course, you said he was, of course, less government, um, yep. government spending, government regulations, which is now, of course, more of the conservative part of the Republican Party. Yep. Um, would you say, of course, and I just ask this because now that tends to be the conservative wing, the Tea Party movement, which is the anti-establishment, which, mm -hmm. which the National Democratic Party is sort of like that now. Well, back in the day, they were like that, which is now more of the Tea Party. Right. I think if he would have been president right now, that he would have done a mask mandate, a nationwide mask mandate, or do you think he would have allowed it to be up to the states and the people to decide? What, would, what do you think? 
Well, again, that's a hard one because science is so different now than it was then. Um, and this would be only my opinion, but I would hope that he would have instituted a mask mandate um, just because it's proven that that works, um, that's working now. And the other thing is, if you look at history, um, the epidemic of 1918, the so-called Spanish flu, the, what happened then and what's happened now with, with our COVID-19 virus, are, it's so similar, it's absolutely scary. Um, that a lot of people poo-pooed wearing masks and poo-pooed, you know, not getting together. And so they had these like mass events and, um, and you know, thousands and thousands of people died um, as a result of it. And when people wore masks and were what we're now calling socially distanced, it didn't spread. Um, but unlike the coronavirus, the flu of 1918, because, um, you know, viruses are bizarre creatures. I mean, they're as close we get to aliens on Earth as you can, as you can get. Um, the 1918 flu just went away after Christmas. It just vanished. Um, and, you know, I, I was hoping, I was hoping that would be the case. But, you know, now, now we've, you know, we're all getting, you know, shots in the arms. And um, so hopefully that, you know, we can, we can put our masks away. I'm looking forward to that. Which, of course, you know, not getting too much onto the mask mandate thing. But I think, of course, by the summer, I mean, you already see some states like Texas and um, Alabama, which is no surprise, of course, based off their leadership. But I believe even other states like Oregon is now opening up schools, which has a very liberal governor. Even states like that are now starting to end the mask mandate. Well, not the mask mandate, but letting kids go back to school, which would mean right. um, 70 80% herd immunity. You might not have to wear masks. You might be able to have twice as many people at an event or something like that. So hopefully by the end of this year, we could potentially have football games on again and things like that. It would be a, it would be a great thing. Just as we're as we're talking, I know that in uh, Los Angeles, California, a friend of mine who's in the music business, Los Angeles just had their first live orchestra performance. And yeah, everybody was masked up, but with a full orchestra, and that's huge. One of the things that I'm missing the most is is live music. Um, you know, just to be able to go, I don't care if I'm listening to, you know, somebody play a guitar on a back porch or, you know, stacks of screaming Marshall amplifiers. I miss it. <laughs> I miss it. Yes. And you're also a radio person. How do you get into the radio business? I, I always was fascinated by it. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, I just loved radio. I thought it was a lot of fun. And when I moved to New Hampshire, um, there was a small station nearby and I went and asked them for a job and, um, and they said yes. And um, things are kind of, you know, technically different then, but um, I did that for a long, 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 long time. And I basically did a little bit of everything. And um, I think I figured that in my first radio era, I did, um, I probably did 3000, I counted once it was 3,500 interviews with people from everybody who ran the bake sale to people who eventually became president of the United States. Because remember, in New Hampshire, we have that New Hampshire primary. Exactly, which so, is a big one for both sides. So, um, you know, like for example, real quick, um, for some of our listeners who might not know, many people only think about presidential elections when it comes to general election, the Democrat and the Republican on the debate stage. Well, there's about 10 or 15 people in a primary typically. And Iowa is the first race, is the first state up, followed by New Hampshire typically. But you look at things like this, Donald Trump didn't win the Iowa caucus, Ted Cruz did. 
Trump ended up carrying New Hampshire, which led him to win South Carolina, which ended up getting him the Super Tuesday states to end up being a Republican nominee and ultimately Republican and ultimately President of the United States of America. Same goes for George Bush. He didn't have a very strong win in Iowa at first, but in New Hampshire and South Carolina, he dominated it. So for our listeners out there who didn't know, I'm not trying to get off topic here, but you're 100% right on New Hampshire is a very key state. And it's only how many counties? Oh, I think it's like, I can't remember exactly. I always lose track, but I mean, we're only 1.3 million people. And in the New Hampshire primary, there are usually, if you put Democrats and Republicans together, there are 35 or 40 people running. Some of them you've never heard of um, and never will again. But in New Hampshire, if you want to run for president and think about this, this might be fun. All you need is a thousand bucks and you're on the ballot. And, um, and it's guaranteed, you know, even if you're Satan, you'll get a few votes. Um, so it's something great that will go in your obituary and all that kind of thing. But we have, you know, we get a real cast of characters wandering through the state of New Hampshire during the, the New Hampshire primary. It's really, it's real. it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's great to watch. And you have to, you know, you have to literally seal yourself in a closet not to meet somebody who's running for president. Just like in Iowa, of course, you know, it's the candidates are in every county and everything like that. But I got to ask you, what is your best part of your radio career been like? It's doing, you know, it's doing the interviews, Jacob. It's like exactly what you're doing right now, because you talk to people, you learn stuff by listening. Um, and, um, you know, and then the key is to attempt to try and make that interesting for, for other people as well. Um, that's the most fun part. And that's what I'm doing primarily you know, right now is um, doing news and, and interviews with people. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's absolutely my pleasure. And um, anytime at all, it's, um, it's, you know, I know that the other, the other presidential descendants you've talked to, you know, we all agree that it's, we like to, you know, get the word out and, you know, American history is fascinating. And if you don't know the past, you will not know the present. And um, that is so important. I don't care if you're a STEM freak or not, you still have to know history and what went on. Um, Cause it'll make you, it'll just, it'll just make the present a lot easier to tolerate. Exactly. Just like how there's a reason why in presidential elections, you see the way the maps go um, and states that lean more democratic versus Republican gerrymandering, which happens in all states, of course, but you don't learn about that unless you read history and how the gerrymandering thing all started. That's why history is important. Um, exactly. Cancel cultures trying to get rid of a lot of history out there. Um, you know, even if it was racist, it's history still, and you can't erase it. We can move forward, which is what we're doing, which is great moving forward, but we can't erase it because history is, we need to learn from our past, our bad moments, and we also need to learn on how we fixed it, of course, but it's never good to erase history completely. Right, and I think anybody who thinks that's what they can do, you know, they're wrong. I understand completely the, the, you know, the taking down of, of various symbolic things that are, you know, that just aren't right, um, but you can't erase history. I, I'm in part of a group that meets every every year out in Missouri, and it started as a meeting of of president of basically presidential descendants. And one of the people that has become a very good friend and we welcome with open arms is a guy named Bertram Hayes Davis, who's like the great 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 grandson of Jefferson Davis. And you know, at first I said, "Whoa, wait a minute, he's the bad guy. What is he doing here?" Um, and um, 
you know, and it he's it's still part of history, you know. And you know, one of the great photographs I have is him. Uh, you know, here's a descendant of Jefferson Davis with his arm around a descendant of of the slave Dred Scott. So it's you know, it's wonderful to be able to see reconciliations and and positive moves forward um, that are based on history. Um, so um, yeah, it's great. Not only that, but history can be fun. You know, when you're standing in a place where something amazing happened, um, that's really cool. I mean, I get goosebumps from it. And you know, somebody said, "Well, you know, this happened right here," and you go, "Wow, that's inc that's incredible." So you know, history is it, it, you know it's important, but it can also be really fun. It's not just memorizing presidents, which I don't think people do anymore. I mean, I couldn't give you the presidents in order right now either. So, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, Jacob. Not a problem. Take care. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Year Show today. Today, I am joined by James Carter, the fourth, who is the grandson of President Jimmy Carter. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, um, as well as can be. I'm glad everything's getting back to normal with COVID and everything. Awesome. Before we get into the questions, would you like to talk a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. I, um, I run a, a political opposition research firm. I work for candidates to dig up dirt on their opponents. Um, I actually got my start in 2012 when I found the 47% video that ended up uh, damaging Romney's campaign and getting Obama reelected. And at that point, you know, the political research and stuff was just a hobby, but because of that, I was able to turn it into a job and I love it and I'm still doing it. Awesome. And if we'd be able to talk a little bit about the campaigns that you've maybe worked for, if you can, or if you, or if you can't say that a little bit about what it's like. Well, I, I work for mostly Georgia campaigns, state house and state senate, so nothing super high profile, but um, it's just, it's nice being the one who has all of the information, you know? Uh, <laughs> I like, I like uh, being able to provide, when people have questions for me, being able to come back with an answer that's, that's accurate and complete, and then let them do with it what they will. I'm not super involved in campaign strategy or anything like that. I just provide the information. Awesome. And um, of course, getting into a little bit about you before I ask you some questions. Um, you also played basketball in high school and yes. college. What was it like playing on a college basketball team? Well, I didn't get to play that much in college. I played for Center College in Kentucky, um, but I had a, but I broke my arm, my right wrist, which is my shooting hand. And it kind of sidelined me for a while. So my college career, while it existed, was very short. Um, but really, it was you know the same as as high school. Once you get out on the court, everything kind of disappears, and you're just playing the game. Awesome. And what position were you in basketball? I was a point guard slash shooting guard. Did you ever get to play against Kentucky or, or um, Louisville? No, no, we were Division Three, so we Division played against three. we played against small 
uh, small school, so. Pike College, I'm sure, was one of them. Yeah, maybe. All right, awesome. Um, so getting into a few of the questions, of course, um, what is the first memory that you remember having with your grandfather or your grandmother, former First Lady Rosalind Carter? Well, it's, it's difficult to remember the first one because I've heard so many stories um, about when I was young. So it's hard to distinguish what is my memory and what is uh, created memory from stories that I've been given. But I do remember uh, running around in the White House uh, chasing Amy's cat. Um, I remember being outside with uh, my grandfather and playing in the treehouse. Um, you know, things like that. It was a, it was a, I don't know, it's surreal to think about it now. At the time, of course, it was all that I knew, so it didn't seem special. But looking back, it's, it's uh, pretty amazing having crawled and, and tottered around on the historical ground there. Now, did you ever get to spend any nights in the White House as a kid? I actually uh, lived in the White House. I was, I was born um, the month after my grandfather's inauguration. I was born on February 25th, 1977. Um, and my first home that I went back to was the White House. Wow. And I was there for uh, two and a half or three years uh, nonstop until my parents uh, separated. And after my parents separated, I came to Atlanta with my mom, but I still visited a lot in the last year, year and a half. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you were young back then, very young. Yes. Um, do you have any memories of living in the White House? Yeah, just the, again, playing, um, chasing Amy's cat around and playing in the yard, mostly. It had to be a surreal experience having Secret Service by your side. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Secret, Service, the Secret Service were great. Um, one of the, they were actually waiting. When I was born, the Secret Service were in the waiting room waiting to go on duty um, because I was one of the protectees. My mom wasn't a protectee because it's only blood relatives that count. So they were waiting for me to be born so that they could then wow. go on duty, which was which is a, a good story. Also, they, my Secret Service code name, the one that they gave me is Digger, Digger. which is, they named me after uh, Digger Phelps, who had coached the team that had just ended uh, UCLA's, you know, season's long win streak. Um, and I'm extremely lucky uh, uh, about that because the other option was Diaper. So, uh, if, if Digger Phelps hadn't coached his basketball team well, I might have been called Diaper instead of Digger. <laughs> wow. Um, and for all my guests out there, the Secret Service codename is a very real thing. Of course, I've interviewed a few other grandchildren, uh, Michael Reagan, and they have some of the weirdest names. Yeah, they, uh, they choose a letter. Name. I'm not sure exactly how they choose a letter, but all of the, the family members start with the same letter. Now I gotta ask you, um, did you ever get to fly on Air Force One? Uh, yeah, I have a picture of me as a baby with 
um, in my grandfather's lap on Air Force One. I don't remember any of the, the trips, so I was too young. Interesting. Um, and of course, getting into a few other things, what would you say was your favorite moment, if you remember maybe going to dinner in the White House? I know you were very young, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, my, one? Uh, when Clinton was president, he invited us back um, for to spend the night one night. And I got to sit in the solarium around a round table with uh, Bill Clinton and my grandfather and a couple of my cousins and just listen to them talk about international relations and foreign policy for about two and a half hours. And that was one of the highlights of my life. It was amazing. Both of them have encyclopedic knowledge of the issue. And I mean, it was just, I was just in awe. Wow, that, that had to be a surreal moment. Um, what would you say is a lesson that your grandfather or grandmother gave you that was important, that sort of has led your way in life? Do you remember something that really stuck out when, stuck out when you were younger or even that they told you that's inspired you in some way? Yeah, it's just, you know, always... I think my grandfather's religion guided him to look at the world as um, kind of as a peacemaker. And I think just his drive towards peace in every aspect of his life, um, peace and justice and democracy uh, was extremely important. And, and he, you know, we've talked about it and he's, you know, given advice and sayings over the years, but it's really his example in that regard that has stuck with me the most. And how about your um, grandmother? Do you have anything that that's that um, that you've ever taken to your heart that she's told you or any? My grandmother about? is great. She is the more political of the two. Um, Interesting. Yeah, he again, guided by his sense of, um, you know, peace and justice and democracy. Um, when he was in the White House, just wanted to get everything possible done that he could possibly do, regardless of what the political outcome was. She was always advising him to, you know, maybe wait on this or do this a little differently to, try and get reelected, I guess. Um, but it was, it really was, they, they are a partnership and it's really the team that, that led him to be able to become president and everything that he's done in his, in his post-presidency. Um, and they really are a team. They work incredibly well together. And I just hope to have that kind of relationship with my wife for that long. Their awesome. 75th wedding anniversary is coming up in July. 75th? Yes. Yes. And I mean, I, I remember, I think I've watched a documentary or something and I, and I, I, I could be wrong here, but I think at first um, she rejected Jimmy Carter and he never gave up if I'm correct. Well, and you know, one of the tries that happened, and now they turned into great partners for life. Yeah, that's right. He was he was uh, young, and so was she. 
I think maybe he didn't, uh, they didn't hit it off immediately. But I think once he had gone away to the, uh, to the Navy or to the Naval Academy and come back, then, you know, she was, he was a little bit more impressive, let me say. Awesome. And another, a few other questions I just have are, um, what is your favorite? I know we talked about what's important thing that they've told you, but what is a memory? What is a memory that you always remember? Um, could have been when you were in the White House with them, could have been even recently. Any memories that you really have with either your grandmother or grandpa that really stick out? Well, my grandmother, I mean, the thing that pops out at me is that one of our, we go on a family vacation every year at Christmas, and there's a bunch of us now. Um, but I remember, you know, it was probably 10, 15 years ago now when, when I first heard her tell a dirty joke. And, uh, and that was just, I mean, <laughs> it was hilarious. First of all, the joke was hilarious, but also her telling it um, was funny too. And they, they were my grandparents, but they were also such celebrities. I know them on a personal uh, level, but also I know what their public persona is. And it was just nice to be able to really see the, the breakdown between the two, I guess, to be able to separate the private and the public. And the first time I was able to do that probably was the dirty joke. Wow, awesome. And, and uh, uh, yeah, my grandfather, I just remember, you know, when I was growing up, in high school, um, we would go fishing. And for some of the family trips would be fishing trips. And he taught me how to fly fish. And um, that was just, you know, he's so relaxed. Most of the time he's, you know, incredibly busy and um, always has a, a million things going on, or at least until very recently. But uh, the times when we were fishing as a family, he could really relax and just uh, kind of let all of the, the issues that he was dealing with kind of uh, drift away. And he was at peace in those moments. And I loved being there with him for that. Awesome. And what would you say it's like growing up the kid of a president? Um, what would you say that's like? I, you know, it's weird because I've never not been the, the grandkid of a president. So it's, it's difficult to, uh, to I, I have to guess at what it would be like if I wasn't. I mean, I understand that there are some privileges uh, like all of the, the international travel and, and things and all of the people I've been able to meet because of him and all of that. But, you know, our relationship is still one of just grandfather and grandson it's similar to the one i had with my mom's uh father before he passed away you know i look up to them i looked up to both of them with uh profound respect and try to model myself after them both that's really awesome and a final question that i have is um of course you've done a little bit of political work and everything what, what direction do you see America headed in the next years to come and decades to come? 
you know, <laughs> I used to be pretty confident in my predictions uh, until 2016. <laughs> and in 2016, I realized that I really don't know anything. Um, <laughs> and I don't think anybody else knows much of anything either. So, you know, at this point, I think there are some trends, anti-democratic trends that the country is going through that I think are disturbing and disheartening. I'm hoping that, um, that the voters can come together to push against that and have kind of a backlash against that in the next, in the midterm elections and then again um, in the next presidential election, hopefully. If that happens, then I think we can you know, dismiss it and I think it'll go away. If they're able to, if those forces are able to gain some ground in the next couple of elections, though, it, it could be rough going forward. I would agree. Um, thank you so much for coming on our show. Now, I always, I always um, end with this question. What advice would you have for the next generation of voters? Just, it's important to elect people with uh, high morality, people that are empathic and um, put their selves in other people's shoes and realize what effects their policies will have on everyone, not just on themselves. Um, if there are more people like that of either party that get elected, I think we'll be in better shape. So that's what I would look for in a candidate. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Beer Show today. Today, I'm joined by Clifton Truman Daniels, who is the grandson of President Harry Truman. How are you doing today? Fine, Jacob. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, the first question that I have, and it really, it really isn't a question, who are you? Um, for our viewers who might not know who you are. Uh, as you said, Clifton Truman Daniel, oldest grandson of Harry and Bess Truman, uh, honorary chairman of the Truman Library Institute in Independence, Missouri, board secretary for the Truman Scholarship Foundation. Beyond that, I lecture on my grandfather, lecture on the uh, U.S. presidency, U.S. history, and I also play my grandfather on stage in a one-man show, Give Him Hell Harry. <laughs> I watched that one. Um... <laughs> My first question is, if you're ready to dive into questions, unless you'd like to say anything else. No. Is what is your first memory of your grandfather, President Truman, and of your grandma, former First Lady, Bess Truman? What are your memories of both of them the first time, if you can recall, or just any memory? Okay. I don't remember exactly. I, I, I don't remember my first memory of my grandmother. My grandfather, both of them came to visit us in New York when I was very young. I grew up in New York City. And they stayed down the street at a hotel, the Carlisle Hotel at 76th Street and Madison Avenue. And Grandpa kept to the same routine every day, pretty much. He got up early, 5.30, 6 o'clock. And he went for a one or two mile walk at a military pace, 120 steps a minute. He often said anything more than a, a mile walk, two mile walk a day didn't do a man over 40 any good. 
So he went for a walk and he came back to the hotel and ate some breakfast and grabbed as many newspapers as they had at the front desk and brought it all up the block to my parents' apartment. We were only a block away. Let himself in with the spare key and threw the newspapers on the floor, picked one up and settled into a chair and read until somebody in my family woke up. And my younger brother, Will, and I were the first ones down one morning while he was visiting. And we saw him sitting in the living room, but he was behind the paper. He had the New York Times up in front of his face. So we started to walk past him to get into the den where my parents kept the television set. Well, he turned the page on the paper and he caught us and he said, where do you think you're going? And I said, into the den, watch TV. And he said, you don't wanna do that. And I'm sure I was thinking, yes, I do. Just why I was trying to sneak past you. And he said, I have a much better idea. And he reached up on the top shelf and he pulled down a book. And he said, you two come here and sit down next to me. We're gonna read. You didn't argue with Harry Truman. So we sat down and he opened the book and started to read. And my mother came down probably 15 minutes later and stopped cold at the bottom of the steps. She'd never seen anything like this. The two of us were sitting absolutely stone still, not moving a muscle, not making a sound, while grandpa read to us from a book that didn't have one picture in it. And she said, what are you reading to those kids? And he showed her the spine of the book. It was Thucydides, History of the Peloponnesian War, at six o'clock in the morning to a four-year-old and a two-year-old. So that's my earliest memory of my grandfather. Wow. And then also, I know our um, listeners out there will love this. When did you know that your grandpa was president? Would you like to share that part? Yeah, well, I didn't know it then. I didn't know it for another two years. I went to, uh, I went to school. I, I found out in school. My parents didn't tell me. I found out in school. It was, uh, and the joke being, you know, thank God it was first grade and not fifth or sixth. I went into school and the teacher was going around the room on the first day asking us to give our names and say a little bit about who we were and our families. And apparently all I said was Clifton Daniel. And she stopped and said, wasn't your grandfather president of the United States? And I said, I don't know, I, it's news to me. And I went home, my mother loved to tell this story. I, I went home that afternoon, I dropped my book bag at the door and I marched over to my mother and I put my hands on my hips and I said, mom, did you know that Grandpa Truman had been president of the United States? And she said, yes, but just remember something. Any little boy's grandfather can be president. Don't let it go to your head. It didn't, it went right over my head. I was six years old, I had no idea what that. Wow. And you know, you didn't know that he was um, president until you were six, of course, that he was a former president. I gotta ask you, um, did he ever like have a security guard by him or anything like that? Or did they not have bodyguards back then? So that's why he never thought he's just an ordinary person. They, they did when the first, they did not extend secret service protection. The United States government didn't extend secret service protection to former presidents until after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So for the first 10 or 11 years of his retirement, my grandfather, my grandparents had no secret service protection. They just went home to independence. They had, during that time, a retired, I think he was retired, of, of independence police lieutenant named Mike Westwood, drove my grandfather around to appointments and, uh, and kind of looked out for them. But it was not a 
24-7 job. So that's all the protection they had until, I believe, early 1964. When JFK, after JFK was assassinated. Right. And um, since then, later, I'm sure the next day you told the teacher, yeah, um, he is my grandfather. Did the teacher ever say, I want to have um, your grandpa coming and talk to the class or what was the teacher like after he's like not that i remember uh you know no i i have no memory that that it went any further than that wow i just i mean i can't imagine what that teacher was like when she was like oh i have the grandson of a president in my class well this is you know i was in school with there were kids in the school that were that were more high profile than i was i, I went to school with walter cronkite's son Wow. So nobody paid any attention to Harry Truman's grandson. Wow. And what school did you go to, if you don't mind me asking? It's a place called St. Bernard's in New York. In New York. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, a private, uh, I think it's still just boys on uh, East 98th Street. East 98th Street. So you grew up in the east side of Manhattan. Right. Got it. And my second question I have is, what is the most important thing that you learned from your grandpa or grandmother? What was the most important thing? Most important thing I, I learned from both of them and from my other grandparents and from my parents, uh, you know, when you're the grandchild of a president or the child of a president or the great grandchild of a president, people often expect great things of you. They, they expect, you asked uh, earlier when we first met about a political career. Uh, my grandfather once said that presidents shouldn't have descendants. Because those descendants will those descendants will spend the rest of their lives with people thinking they ought to live up to their ancestors. The best things I learned from my grandparents and that, that they learned from their parents and their grandparents was just basic, I call it basic good behavior, be honest, be empathetic, treat people kindly, be straightforward, work hard. Um, those are all the the, the the good life lessons and those those were very important to them awesome great advice and um talking about your grandpa right now of course what would you say his biggest achievement was other than being president of the united states of america between well, I've always, the senate or what would you say is his biggest achievement he enjoyed the senate he did he, i don't think i don't know that he would say that that was his greatest achievement but but that was his those were the best 10 years of his working life was as a United States Senator. He liked the give and take. He liked, he just liked the way the Senate worked. He liked working with his colleagues. He liked working across the aisle, Democrats as well as Republicans. So I think that's where he was, well, I know that's where he was happiest, but I, but I always think that the, the greatest achievement, his greatest achievement was that he showed the rest of us that a, a farmer, soldier, small businessman uh, can rise to the highest office in this land and do a better job of it than almost anybody else. Wow, amazing. And um, what would you say your grandmother's best Truman's um, biggest achievement was? And um, she I, was, and I couldn't go ahead. if there was anything, but like nowadays first ladies, of course, like Melania had to be best thing. Um, um, shoot, um, Rich, um, why can't I think of her name? Ronald Reagan's wife. Nancy. Nancy, yes, there we go. Nancy Reagan was um, all against drugs and everything like that. Uh, Michelle Obama was healthy lunch. Did Bess ever have a special initiative when she was first lady that she focused on? 
not really. She uh, she played the part of, of first lady in the traditional sense. She was by grandpa's side uh, for all of the, uh, the functions, the White House functions, the formal functions, visiting heads of state, state dinners. Uh, as a, she was a full partner uh, throughout his career as a judge, as a senator, as vice president, as president. She talked, he talked to her. She was his sounding board. She critiqued his speeches. Uh, so she was, she knew what was going on and she was politically astute. She, uh, she knew what was happening in the world and in the, in the United States Senate, Congress, uh, presidency, vice presidency. So she kept abreast of it. So, but she had her predecessor, Eleanor Roosevelt had been highly visible, uh, globe trotting, lots of initiatives. She was, uh, people I think called her Franklin Roosevelt's eyes and ears, you know, he, he was uh, wheelchair bound for much of his presidency and she traveled. Uh, she traveled and uh, she was very high profile. My grandmother, that just wasn't who my grandmother was. She was, she was much more, uh, a much more private, much more traditional first lady. Awesome. And um, what would you say is the best advice? And I don't know if you touched on this question earlier or not, but what was the best advice that um, anybody gave you when you were growing up from maybe your grandfather to anybody out there, teachers? <laughs> oh, grandpa's, grandpa's uh, he's, he's quoted as saying that the best way to give your children advice is to find out what it is they like to do and advise them to do it. Uh, otherwise, the, the best piece of advice ever I ever got, simple piece of advice was from my late mother, Margaret Truman, when I was, uh, you know, when I was first starting out doing some acting on stage, she said, remember, when you are not talking, stand still, don't fidget. I thought it was great. And you did some acting, of course. What was that like? It, acting's fun. That's uh, <laughs> It's, it's a little hair raising when you're the only one on stage and you have to remember all the lines it's in this one man show it can be a, a little nerve wracking at first, but now it's uh, people who are uh, lucky enough, talented enough to get to act for a living. Uh, I can't think of a better way to spend your time. It's a lot of fun. Yes. And then I got to ask, I've done a little bit of acting <laughs> only in the high school. Uh, musical so not too much of course there you go uh, you got it you got to sing and dance Jacob that's, yes. that's pretty good and unfortunately after three weeks of doing it doing some of the acting and stuff I had a conflict in my schedule and I had to drop out of that so I mm. never made it to the performance and that but for a few weeks I saw it was like as an actor mm. so you know a little bit of experience but not too much um, you were also a newspaper person you worked for a newspaper company what was that like I enjoyed that. Uh, I worked for uh, the uh, Morning Star and Sunday Star News in Wilmington, North Carolina for 15 years. And the paper at that time was, was, a, uh, was owned by the New York Times. The New York Times owned a string of small regional newspapers uh, called the New York Times Regional Newspaper Group. Uh, I enjoyed it. I was a feature writer, a lifestyle reporter. So there was uh, never any day that was the same. No story was the same. The people were great. I liked working with other reporters. It was, uh, it's a good job. Awesome. And um, speaking of the newspaper industry real quick, would you say that it's, you know, so of course with media nowadays and everything like that being online, do you think that we're gonna ever see 
the newspaper industry in some form come back to life like it once was? Do you think that that's all over? Without I don't know. I don't know that it, it, it can ever go back to to where you to, to like my grandfather, where you would go to the front desk of a hotel when you're visiting a city and scoop up four or five newspapers and carry them with you. Um, we read a lot online now. I, I hope I, I hope the written word in whatever form it is, whether you're you're reading it on your tablet or you've got a piece of paper in your hands or a book, uh, I would hope that that sticks around because you can't you can't get in depth with with uh, with television or with these with quick online news flashes. Um, and I you know I uh, I'm a big fan of straight reporting. We have a lot of we have a lot of uh, pundits these days. We have a lot of opinion, and we have a twenty four seven news cycle. They have to fill it with something, and there and a lot of them are very very good at it. But uh, I uh, I always enjoy just somebody giving me what happened. Just just tell me what happened and why. Uh, don't don't guess. Don't give me an opinion. Uh, sometimes that's that's okay. I mean, I, you can't escape it. But that's where our news cycle. Kind of and I always like that as well. Now, I just got to ask you, of course, between um, with, of course, the media nowadays being more opinionated because it's 24 seven. What would you say are good newspapers or media companies that you would say for the most part for our young listeners out there who are my age, who might want to, you know, start bringing stick news? with the stick with the established, the reputable ones. I mean, you've got the Times, you've got the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune. So the, the papers that have been around for a while. And, and do your homework if you're young and, you're, and you want to read newspapers. Look at the history of these papers. Look at, look at what they write, how they present the news. Look at their editorial pages. You, know, you can decide for yourself pretty quickly whether or not they're giving you the facts or they're slanting it in some way or other. So you go with established, established media outlets. And I, that was, those were just the newspapers. You've got the NBC, CBS, ABC, the major networks, CNN, MSNBC. There's a lot of good stuff. Fox, there's good reporting on Fox. You've got a lot of good established channels out there, straight news. And I know this was an easy answer earlier, of course, when I asked you um, off recording, but did you ever have any aspirations to run for office? Because of course the Bush family, they've had their grandkids, their kids, um, George H.W. Bush's dad was a lawyer and representative. Did you ever have any aspirations or anybody in your family have aspirations to run for any office? I didn't, no, I never had any serious aspirations uh, to run for public office. My late brother, Will, who I was talking about a little earlier, uh, never ran for public office, but he worked on campaigns when he was living and working in New York. Uh, he was a psychiatric social worker by profession, but he also worked on uh, local city council campaigns over the years and did a lot of outreach. He did a lot of outreach, uh, voter registration with homeless folks in New York. So very much an advocate for, for people that didn't, that don't normally have a voice. That's great. Um, and another thing I just have real quick is that I just would like to ask is of course, being the grandson of a president, what are some of the good things that you've been able to do because of that, such as being in any films or any movies like that or any documentaries? What are some of the things that you've really liked that you've been able to do since you're the grandson of a president? No, occasionally, it's nice when people ask. And, and I, uh, you know, I've, I've been interviewed for some television shows and documentaries on my grandfather. Uh, 
Um, I think one of the uh, one of the best things that has come out of it was an invitation to travel to the memorial ceremonies in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan in 2012. Um, my two sons and my wife and I attended both ceremonies and met in between with more than two dozen survivors. And I continued after that for four or five years to work with survivors talking to school children in New York City about, uh, about disarmament, uh, dangers of the nuclear, the worldwide nuclear stockpile. That is great what you've been able to do because of that and talk to kids about it. Um, and another quick question I just have before I wrap this up is, um, did you ever get to go to the White House, of course, and get um, to go into the living quarters to see where your grandparents, where your grandparents used to sleep, and what rooms they used to spend in back when they were um, first? Yeah, I've uh, I've been to the White House several times for for various events. I've only been in the family quarters once, when uh, President and Mrs. Johnson were living in the White House. It was the morning after President Johnson's inauguration in 1965, uh, we had, my parents had attended the inauguration and my brother Will and my parents and I stopped off to see the Johnsons in the morning, had breakfast with them in the morning before we went back to New York that day. Uh, that's the only time I've been in the, in the family quarters upstairs, but I've been for, for more formal occasions a couple more times than that. Awesome. And I gotta just ask you real quick, what is your favorite room in the White House? <laughs> I never thought about that. Um, good question. I don't know. I don't think I have one. And um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our viewers about um, your grandpa or grandmother? Uh, just that they were, uh, like I said earlier, the best thing about them is they were good people, hardworking, honest, empathetic people who saw politics. My grandfather particularly saw the presidency in particular, as an advocate for all Americans. And his job as president was to, to make things better as broadly and for as many people as he could. Awesome. Thank you very much for coming on our show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Beer Show today. Today, we're joined by um, President Eisenhower's granddaughter, Mary Eisenhower. How are you doing today? Doing great, how about you? I'm doing pretty good myself. Good. Are you ready to dive into the questions? Sure, why not? <laughs> My first question is, what was the first memory that you remember having with your grand, grandpa, grandfather and grandma? Well, that's kind of strange. Um, it, it was actually in the White House and, the, and this is like one of my first memories of all, but I was, afraid of the elevator and I would have nightmares about it. And um, I woke up in between them one night. Uh, he was reading and uh, she was trying to soothe me because I just had a bad dream. And you know, she, she was rubbing my back and saying, it's okay, you've just had a bad dream. Don't worry, don't worry. But that, that was my first. And as soon as I saw both of them together, I just relaxed and you know, I didn't worry about the, the elevator anymore. <laughs> wow. And that was the White House elevator, correct? <laughs> yes, I, I never got the idea that you could step in a room and end up on a different floor. I, you know, it, it just, it scared me. 
Wow. <laughs> and um, of course, that sort of goes into our next question. You shared with me before we went on how you've actually spent a at the White House quite a few times when you were a kid. Um, President Eisenhower was president until you were six. What was it like? Well, um, it was very different, of course, from um, our regular house in Gettysburg. Um, uh, if, if the dog peed on the carpet, uh, the consequences were much more severe at the White House than they, than they were at home. <laughs> but um, yeah, I knew it was a fancy house and I just thought uh, my grandparents lived in a fancy house. I didn't realize they didn't own it. You know, because I was little, it was just their house, you know, but they also had one in Gettysburg too. So, um, you know, and there were rules, um, not rules, but, you know, they tried to teach me how to, you know, be extremely polite with table manners and things like that. My grandmother actually taught me to use a finger bowl. Most people don't even know what a finger bowl is um, anymore. Um, but I was about age three and I remember her instructions, you know, and uh, so, you know, and they also uh, taught me how to, um, you know, to be polite, to shake hands and the Mr. and Mrs. thing and all that. Of course, we didn't have COVID, so hands, <laughs> shook hands. And, and what was like, what was the first night like, if you remember, because of course you were young, what was it like um, sleeping in the White House and saying to yourself, you know, I'm sleeping in this house that is world famous. And what, what was it like? Well, I wasn't, um, I don't think I was so much aware of it being world famous, but there were things about it that kind of, um, when I, I had a, a, a bedroom there and uh, at night, um, the old executive office building, which is a, um, a Victorian, it's now called the uh, Eisenhower ex uh, Executive Office Building because he saved it from being raised uh, during his administration. And um, the building, uh, it's its this old Victorian, it almost looks like an oversized ship, you know, to me uh, as a kid it did, but it used to scare me because it was lit up. And so whoever was putting me to bed always had to make sure that the blinds were down so I didn't have to see it. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> I know about the Eisenhower building. Now, of course, for some of our listeners who might not know, it's used for the vice president's office now. Yes. And it's literally just, if you walk out of the West Wing of the White House, you walk right across the street. It's, just, it's on the same complex. It is right there. And the vice president has offices in there as well as even the president, some of his staffers work in there. It's not super famous. It's not as famous as the White House but it's a building that is used for a lot of government stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it was originally a naval uh, building. I didn't know that, wow, thanks exactly. for sharing. Yeah. yeah. My next question is, what was it like growing up whenever you were at the White House and you were with your grandpa, what was it like? And, you know, with reporters, of course, being there in the media and people, people from other countries coming, other leaders coming to meet with your grandpa. What was that like? Well, I always thought that the leaders that, that came um, were just some of his friends because they were always so nice to each other. You know, the, the whole diplomatic, you know, be kind of dinner type thing. You know, I, I think when they spoke their 
negotiations and things like that. I wasn't there for that, but I was there for meal times and uh, things. And I knew that, um, you know, there, like I say, it was a lot different from our, from being in Gettysburg. Uh, I had to really watch my table manners and I had to make sure that, you know, I wasn't spilling or talking with my mouth full and all that stuff. So it was a much more formal life. But um, like I said, uh, I always thought of the world leaders as being, uh, I thought it was just another one of grandfather's friends, you know, granddad's friends or something like that. And he would often, he would bring them to um, uh, Gettysburg sometimes so that they could see something other than DC or New York as, uh, you know, they could see part, another part of America. And um, one time uh, Charles de Gaulle came, it was 1957. And so I was, I was fairly young, um, but I still remember the, no, I'm sorry, it was 58. Um, I still remember the visit. Um, and they, they came over to our house for, you know, family hour before dinner. And then our, our house, our property abutted the farm's property, the Eisenhower Farm in Gettysburg. So then they, um, you know, were to go over there for dinner. So uh, I walked in the room and um, there was de Gaulle um, and his wife and security and a translator and then granddad and Mimi. And now our house wasn't nearly as big as theirs, okay. So granddad and Mimi, my parents, my three siblings, um, and a translator also. And there was no chair for me. You know, uh, youngest always kind of rings up the rear, but anyway. So I looked around the room and I saw another one of granddad's friends, which happened to be Charles de Gaulle. And I went over and sat in his lap because that's, wow. you know, that's that's what family does, right? And um, he he didn't even flinch. I mean, it was as though I wasn't there. He didn't think anything, uh, about it and they're talking through their interpreters uh, so nobody thought he spoke English and um, my granddad handed him a document to read and so he starts to read it um, but he had put on his glasses to do it and his glasses were I mean incredibly thick incredibly thick so in my diplomatic little way I said oh why are your glasses so thick and he said because I cannot see poor, poor me. Wow. And the whole room went silent because they're like, oh, he does speak English. Wow. <laughs> and another thing is Camp David, of course, was named after your uncle, if I'm right. My brother. Or your brother. Yes. Um, did you ever get to go to Camp David? Oh, yeah. What was it like? And for those of you who don't know, um, if the president wants to get away from the White House, Trump never really went to Camp David much because he had Mar-a-Lago, but a lot of presidents to get away for a short weekend or something, they would go on Marines One and they would take them to Camp David and they would just hang out with their family. A few of their advisors would come sure. and things like that. What was it like when you went to Camp David? Well, there's two things I remember best about it. Now you got to remember I was a kid, small kid. Um, one was the, there was a bowling alley and I always, uh, you know, we'd have family matches and I always got the booby prize because, you know, it would just go down 
I'd, I'd roll the ball in the gutter and that was it, you know, call it a day, right? So I always, um, but, you know, it got to where if I accidentally scored or something, it kind of upset me because I did get a booby prize. I got some kind of, you know, thank you for, you know, like a lollipop or something like that, just because I lost and it, it was a compensation. And then the other, um, they had the, you know, modern last century, mid-century um, chairs that swiveled in the living room. Um, and I used to overdo it on those. And I just remember uh, overdoing it one time and losing my lunch. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I just went straight to my room after that because that's where I went when I misbehaved anyway, that's where they sent me. So I just got off of the chair and, you know, told, told somebody, you know, what I, what had happened. And I just went to my room. Wow. <laughs> I trouble. Interesting. And two other questions <laughs> that I have is um, what was your favorite memory that you ever had with your grandpa and your grandma? Um, may I answer those separately? For sure. Yeah. With granddad, um, I had a, um, a, a dear friend in school. She was a year older than I was. Um, and this actually happened in the 60s. This was after the presidency. But she was born with um, three holes in her heart. It was a con congenital, I think they call it, uh, uh, condition. And um, I uh, had caught polio. Um, and so I, she and I were in for recess a lot during school and we became very close friends. You know, we played Barbie dolls and all that. And she was one person, you know, when granddad was alive, she didn't care who I was related to, you know, um, and she was just undaunted by it, but she was very sick and, and she died. Um, and I was really traumatized by her, her death. And, um, I was sitting on the porch at the par farm. There was a glass in porch, which is where that was kind of our flop spot. That was the one room we could, you know, kind of relax in. And um, granddad was watching Green Acres on uh, TV. And um, I was sitting on like a love seat and I was really down. And he looked over at me and he, he actually had a remote control for the TV, believe it or not. You know, that was, he, he had one of the pioneer ones. But he turned the TV off and he came over and he sat by me on the sofa. He, he knew what was wrong. And um, he paraphrased uh, a poem and he said, you know, uh, you, you mustn't be sad because um, she's all around you. She's out there where you play. She's in your heart. She, you know, and he, he went on and on. And I'll just never forget, I, I put my head on his chest and I heard his heartbeat and I felt so secure and so loved. So I'll always remember that. Wow. Still uh, this is 60 years later. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Great story. Thank you. <laughs> um, and is there any other memories that you had that you recall that were good ones as well? I I'm sure a lot of good ones, of course, but is there any other ones that really sticked out? Well, um, maybe more of a characteristic, but um, he had the best belly laugh ever. If you heard my grandfather laugh, you had to laugh too. He was so funny. He, he had a great sense of humor. Wow. 
and my grandmother was the same way she they they both that's what i loved about being around them that was like the best time of my life when they were alive because um they were so positive and they they believed so much in in uh people's ability to get things done and you know day to day you know just the resilience of of everyday people uh including us and they had an uncanny ability to um make every one of us think that we were their favorite wow. everyone thought we were the favorite one <laughs> that's awesome and um, my next question that i have is what was his personal side like well like i said he had a great sense of humor and um uh he was always honest there were there were two cardinal sins in our family um you could not lie and you couldn't break the law i mean those were those were like unforgivables you know that's that's the kind where you think you're going to be punished for life right and uh actually there, there were a few things that were kind of interesting uh they had a flagpole uh on the farm um right outside of uh the glassed in porch so it was at five o'clock sharp every day it was taken down it was put up at seven in the morning and taken down if we were on the porch or looking at it for whatever reason or in its presence when either one of those acts were taking place up or down we had to stop what we were doing and we stood up and put our hands on our on, on our hearts to watch the flag uh being raised or lowered and um uh so i think what one of the things that i miss about him uh, oh well that's right i was going to tell a funny story too um i was helping my mother clean out the attic uh in 79 so that was about 10 years after he he died um and i came across this picture of david uh as a kid a little kid um with with a, a toy pistol pointed at the camera which i guess you wouldn't do today but you know that was a different time but anyway, uh, and I said, what is this? You know, he had on little shorts and it was obviously an Easter picture. You know, he had uh, a little tam on and little jacket and, you know, he just looked like a cute little boy. Anyway, uh, so she said, oh, your grandfather's so naughty. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, um, they had a code apparently. When the press started, you know, kind of getting my grandfather down a little bit, you know, when it was just too much, he would clap his hands three times and David would do that. And so all the attention went to David. <laughs> and and then got, you're done. Yeah. Wow. That is just, that's also very interesting. <laughs> it's a cute picture too. <laughs> and a great other question that I have real quick is if President Eisenhower was still alive today, how do you think he would feel about America right now. I don't think he'd recognize it, to be honest with you. Um, and and things like we we mentioned some of the some of the actions taking place that aren't constitutional and things like that. Uh, he would be very disappointed. However, one thing that um, he never lost sight of was the resilience of American citizens. And I think he would know as much as I do that that we'll come out of all this and we'll 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 be fine probably stronger than ever, but it's just, you know, getting from here to there is 
that's where the resilience comes in. Awesome. And is there anything else that you'd like to add? Um, I guess just that I miss them. <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's pretty good when you when you still feel uh, a little bit sentimental about stories. Um, and she's been gone 41 years and he's been gone 51 years. So, um, you know, they had to be great people to still tug my heartstrings like they do. So, um, I don't mean to toot their horns, but you know, they, they, they wouldn't approve. They were very humble, but, uh, anyway, they were the best ever. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thank you so much. And it was great talking to you. It was great talking to you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Buer Show today. Today, I'm joined by Margaret Hoover, who is the host of the PBS show Firing Line. And she's also the great granddaughter of President Herbert Hoover. How are you doing today? Doing great, Jacob. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to me. It's a pleasure. Before we get into questions, would you like to talk a little bit about yourself and what you do? You've wrote a book, of course. You also have a TV show. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, you know, the program is called Firing Line, and it is actually um, a newer version of a show that actually aired on PBS for 33 years and was hosted by an iconic television personality who is probably the most prominent uh, conservative uh, in the modern American conservative movement. His name was William F. Buckley Jr. And he was enormously influential in terms of bringing um, conservative ideas um, from, you know, really the 1960s to the late 1990s um, into the mainstream of American political discourse. And uh, the program, uh, when it stopped airing in 1999, um, offered all of its um, videotapes and archival footage to a think tank in California called the Hoover Institution, which was founded by my great grandfather, Herbert Hoover, who you mentioned previously was also the 31st president of the United States. And so um, we actually use the archival footage of the original firing line in every single one of our episodes because Buckley covered so many important, relevant and critical conversations and ideas between 1966 and 1999, really the you know, last half of the 20th century and also had as his guests, the most seminal and influential political and cultural figures in the last half of the 20th century, that many of the ideas that influence our discourse today um, are directly relevant to those interviews that he had. And uh, so we think it's important editorially to, to show um, where there are similarities, parallels in the thinking, or, or frankly, there's been an evolution in thinking um, and in the culture uh, on, on many topics since then. So it's a, it's a historical perspective that brings, I think, a bit of richness and depth to the program that we put on every week. And you can catch it on your local PBS affiliate uh, wherever you live in the country. 
Awesome. And what time does it air for all of our listeners out there who might be interested? Well, you'll have to check what your local PBS affiliate um, runs it because it's different on every channel at like every PBS station. For example, the PBS affiliate in New York City, where I live, airs it on 8.30 p.m. on Friday nights and again at 10 a.m. on Saturdays. Um, but it's different in every city and in every sort of region in the country, depending on when your local affiliate airs it. So you'll have to check your local listings, um, but you'll be able to find it. You can also, by the way, you can stream it on YouTube, like at um, 8.30 p.m. on Fridays, when it airs on our uh, the home station uh, in New York City, it is also streamed live on YouTube. So you can also just get it on our YouTube channel. You don't have to look up your local affiliate at all. Just go to Firing Line with Margaret Hoover YouTube channel and you can watch it there, stream it on uh, at live every week at 8.30 p.m. on Fridays. Absolutely. And getting into our questions now, and I should just mention for all my listeners out there, I did check out a few of um, the clips on YouTube. It is a very good show, so I suggest that you check it out at some point if you have extra time. Um, so, of course, you wrote a book in 2011, How a New Generation of Conservatives Can Change, Can Save the Republican Party. Would you like to share a little, a little bit about what it was like writing a book and what your purpose was behind writing it? Well, um, I thanks so much for asking. Look, I <laughs> I stand by most of the ideas that I wrote in that book still today, although they're very, very outdated given where the Republican Party has gone and how um, really the the energy in the Republican Party has developed. It's very much developed away from the ideas that I have recommended uh, more than a decade ago, um, which makes it harder and harder for me to identify. Uh, you know, with the, the, the word conservative, um, because I think the word conservative a decade ago meant something different than it does today. And it certainly meant something quite different 20 years ago when Buckley was wrapping up uh, his run of hosting Firing Line for 33 years. Um, so I wrote the book because I noticed that in the 2008 election when Barack Obama uh, swept into political office and really swept the country as this historic figure and the first black American to be elected to the presidency. I noticed that most young people overwhelmingly voted for him. And I noticed that increasingly young people, millennials and at the time Gen Z wasn't a factor in politics, that was 2010. So Gen Z was um, hardly even being polled or identified as the next generation because they were too young. My concern was that the Republican Party was going to lose an entire generation of voters. And it was a siren call or a, a, a warning that um, there was a, there's sort of a, you know, this is story of the Titanic. There was a major iceberg ahead and I was afraid we were ringing the bell too late to turn the ship around uh, to prevent hitting the iceberg. And so that's why I wrote the book um, in an attempt to say, look, the country is getting more diverse. It's getting younger. It's getting less religious. It's um, changing its attitudes about certain social issues. And if the Republican Party you know, is interested in becoming a competitive party that is a majority governing party, it needs to understand some of these dynamics in a rising generation of millennials in order to appeal to them. And so I, you know, I think most of what I prescribed and wrote about in the book was 
correct. Uh, and I think the party didn't take my advice. <laughs> so I think that's why you get a, a party that's only won one presidential election in the 21st century so far um, with the majority of the popular vote. And that was, of course, in 2004 when George W. Bush won. But if you recall, in 2000, the election was tied. In 2008 and 12, Democrats won. In 2016, of course, Donald Trump won, but he didn't win the popular vote. Um, and that is true, of course, this last year in 2020. Um, so Republicans are on path to be a you know permanent minority party, and they're grappling with how to maintain power in the minority. And uh, that's just not a long-term winning solution for a political party that wants to be competitive. And speaking of it, just since we're on this topic, of course, um, a few weeks ago, I interviewed Mike Reagan. And one thing that he said to me that really sticked out is Republicans, there's a lot more infighting within the Republican Party than within the Democratic Party. I'm not a fan of Speaker Pelosi, but she knows how to get the Democrats to bond together and to get things done when she's in power. And the issue with another issues with the Republican Party, I'm a fellow Republican. But one of the issues is there's so much infighting. You know, you got the Jim Jordan, the Tea Party wing, all of those people. Then you got the people like John Boehner, who's no longer in power, of course, who are like, well, let's try to go back to some of our values and people like you. And just with all the infighting and everything, I see what you mean by we could be a permanent party in the minority in the future to come still. I mean, there is a lot of infighting in the party. I think a lot of it is, um, you know, it's some of it is uh, quite justified. I mean, there's a real rift in the party about um, whether, you know, we should have a commission to examine what happened on January 6th in, in the nation's capital. Uh, and there are people who, you know, um, who are in Congress right now who voted to um, certify the electors that were sent from the states. And there are some who, many Republicans in the House of Representatives who, who voted not to certify those um, electors. Uh, there's a you know, pretty fundamental difference um, between sort of the view of, of what your job is in the House of Representatives to uphold the Constitution. Um, and I think everybody certainly uses that language and, and tries to make the argument they're upholding the Constitution. But um, if you're not voting for the electors that came from the states based on the, you know, uh, the <laughs> Um, safest and most secure election, according to Donald Trump's attorney general uh, and, and each of the state's uh, secretaries of state, um, you know, it, it, you're, not, you're, not, you're not upholding the constitution. Um, so I think some of these differences are, are important differences that are important to, um, to, to fet out actually, uh, in order to, um, to have a party that is, is gonna be truthful and, and actually uphold the constitution. For sure. And really getting into our next um, topic real quick is, of course, your great-grandfather was president. Um, the party was a lot different back then, wasn't as developed as much. Um, what would you say were some of his big ideas? And do you think that he'd be a little bit disappointed within the Republican Party today if it was still, if he was still around? Yeah, look, um, it's, a, it's a really good question and a really important question. In some ways, Herbert Hoover's uh, philosophy about the proper relationship between the individual and the federal government um, was, was fundamentally different than uh, the relationship between the individual and the federal government today. Um, you know, Hoover had real concerns about the misgivings and the overreach of the New Deal, and he, um, you know, the 
expansion of the federal government to include the Great Society and um, the fundamental sort of reframing of um, an expansion of the federal government as, as, and its role in um, the lives of individuals and um, mediating institutions in our society is, is just quite different um, than, <laughs> than Hoover's view in 1928, 1929 and through his presidency. Um, in many ways, Hoover's thinking and analysis about the New Deal and the expansion of government in the context of the Great Depression helped frame uh, and lay the foundation for what, what ended up becoming the modern American conservative movement. But of course, at the time Hoover uh, was president and prior to being president, he was the Secretary of Commerce for both Republicans and Democrats. He, or he's for Harding and for Coolidge. And then prior to Harding, he served in Wilson's cabinet. President Wilson was a Democrat, of course, um, so Hoover was a pragmatic um, politician. He wanted to solve problems. He was not deeply ideological uh, when he was in Washington, um, but he did have a core set of ideas and philosophies that governed um, how he approached uh, how he approached the federal government. And um, you know, I think it, it would behoove us to have people who thought thought deeply about these issues now that were in the executive branch. Um, and uh, and Hoover is also often forgotten for the 86 other years of his life. Um, he lived to be 90. He, at the time that he died, was the longest living president and had the longest post-presidency of any president. And, you know, did extraordinary things in terms of pioneering international humanitarian food relief. Um, he, you know, organized as a private citizen, the feeding of an entire country during World War I that was faced with famine. That was the country of Belgium and then about 2000 communities in Northern France that were caught behind the lines. He himself as a private citizen organized the feeding of an entire nation that the occupied uh, Germans refused to feed and the English refused to provide food for because they believed it would extend the war. So Hoover was um, an unparalleled humanitarian who because of his time in the presidency during the Great Depression, his legacy and contributions to humanity have been largely forgotten. And I'm quite passionate about making sure that uh, by the time my children and grandchildren, God willing, I don't have any grandchildren now, um, have, have, have moved on from this world, there is a, a, a more, a fuller and more balanced historic perspective uh, of an accounting of Herbert Hoover's contributions. Absolutely. And um, just one last thing to touch on with um, Herbert Hoover, of course, is I've always talked to a few different um, kids and grandkids of presidents, of course, that I've interviewed. And I always ask them this question, do you think that your grandfather or grandpa or great grandfather could get elected to today's world? Um, I know a few of the people I interviewed such as um, President Truman's grandson said, I don't think he could because the Democrats have shifted so far to the left. Do you think that um, if Herbert Hoover was alive today and ran for president, do you think that he'd be able to win or do you think that the party has gone too far to this Tea Party side slash right wing conservative? What would you say? Look, I, look, I, um... I think there's two questions with Hoover. There's the question of whether he would fit into the party now, and um, I think I think it'd be very hard to make the case that he would fit into the to aspects of um, the party. I mean, the, the Republican Party has a lot of people who are 
while they're not in power in, within the context of the party right now, they're quite disenchanted by the direction of the party. I mean, just look at George W. Bush last week um, made the statement that he doesn't even think he could get elected in today's Republican Party, uh, that he views the party as being isolationist and nativist and um, uh, protectionist. Um, Hoover is none of those things. I think Hoover's, um, Hoover was uh, none of those things, actually. Um, but I think there's a different question with Hoover too, which is that Hoover was really maybe the last president before the era of television and mass communications and radio. Um, my great grandmother was the first first lady to give a press conference over the radio. Um, Herbert Hoover began using radio actively as president, but it was of course FDR who really harnessed the technology in his fireside chats. And my great grandfather was an orphan. He was six years old when his mother died. He was nine years old. I'm sorry, six years old when his father died, nine years old when his mother died. And really traumatically separated from his two siblings who were closest from him and shipped off to live with a cantankerous uncle in Oregon um, for the rest of his childhood. As a result, he was always very um, shy. He was introverted and never could command big audiences or theaters. He had a, apparently, it was, it was a, a quiet charisma that was always evident in small rooms, but couldn't communicate on a, on a massive scale the way you really need to now in a, an era of, of television and video and radio and mass communication. And so I think the times and the way the American president is expected to communicate with, um, with Americans today is something that just doesn't fall in Her Herbert Hoover's, um, you know, set of set of skills, tools, toolkit. Um, so I think for, for that reason, um, perhaps, and I, and I think in, in some ways that was probably the weakest part of his presidency was his ability to communicate. And he even acknowledged that. He said, if only the American people could know what's in my heart um, with respect to how much suffering there was in the Great Depression. Um, I think that that kind of mass empathy that FDR was able to communicate that Hoover just didn't know how to, um, I think would, would be very hard for any um, president not to have these days. Absolutely. And of course, before we um, end the interview, um, another question I just have real quick is, where do you see America going in the next four years, decade even? Where do you see us going as a country? I mean, and what I advice would he have for the next generation of people who might want to be leaders in some sort of way, no matter it's publicly or starting a charity? What advice would he have for them? Well, here's, people should do exactly what you're doing, Jacob. Find something that you're passionate about, get involved, start a podcast, reach out to people you don't know, ask them to do interviews, learn as much as you can and dedicate yourself to others and to serving others. Um, that is the, the solution for our country has always been in the American people. Um, the American people help us find our, our, our way out every single time. Um, there's this fabulous Winston Churchill quote says you can always, you know, count on the Americans 
in the, you know, after to, to make the right decision after they've exhausted all other options, right? And normally it's the American people, um, not our leaders who, who are the gen who generate the solutions. Um, it was American ingenuity that generated the vaccine for the coronavirus, um, the ingenuity and the risk-taking of our private sector, frankly. Um, and uh, I, I just, I have, I have faith in the American people. I have faith in our country. I have faith in our system of government. Um, but I don't want to sugarcoat the fact that I think we're facing really, really critical challenges. And I think there is a um, hyper-partisanship in Washington and a system of incentives for people who represent us in Washington that is not pointed in the direction of pragmatic um, progress. And I don't mean progress in the sense of progressives. I mean really trying to solve problems and um, uphold the pillars of our um, pillars of our constitution, frankly. Um, so I think we have real challenges. Um, we have a, a mounting debt and deficit that I wrote about a decade ago that has doubled since I wrote about it. Um, so we, we have you know, fiscal challenges, we have um, governance challenges, we have um, real reforms, necessary reforms for our democracy to maintain um, a healthy body politic. Um, and so I, I think, I think the die is not cast, um, but I don't know what the next four to six years or eight years or 10 years holds um, because I think it could go in a lot of different directions, but I'm gonna do my part to ensure that we continue to fight for liberal democracy here at home and democratic reforms and a government that upholds the constitution and the brilliance of the founders of the declaration, the founders of our country who um, penned the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and continue to push for and hope that we continue to uh, sort of strive and arrive closer to the ideals as they were for the country as they were outlined in the Declaration of Independence. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, make sure that you check out her show on PBS, Firing Stones. Um, firing line, firing line. Firing line, my bad. Um, whatever, sorry about that. Um, sorry. Thank you so much for coming on and have a great rest of your day. Okay, thank you, Jacob. Hey, and I just want to say to you, congratulations to you for, um, for reaching out to me, for having this fantastic podcast, um, for really having all this uh, interest in um, engaging with people in the political space and initiative to, um, to, to put together such a, a civic-minded program. I really applaud you and your effort um, and I'm and, and grateful for the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you very much. All right, take good care. You too.